Shabbat Shalom. <clears throat> Shabbat Shalom. The traditional greeting at the opening of Sabbath in the Jewish community of faith. Shabbat, Sabbath, Shalom, peace. The peace of Sabbath upon you. That's what I wish for you. Shabbat Shalom. Everybody try to say that together. Shabbat Shalom. One more time. Shabbat Shalom. Yeah, isn't that cool? Now you can say some Hebrew. Look really smart. <clears throat> Shabbat Shalom. Some months ago, I preached a sermon that was a little disturbing by the title when I said, I'm going to preach on why I do not tithe. Now, if you missed that, you may want to see me. <laughs> Today, I'm going to preach on why I diligently keep the Sabbath. Two opposites. We expect to be legalistic about our tithing. And when I was a little kid, I used to wonder, well, we got Ten Commandments. How come we only have to keep nine? Did you ever wonder about that? Did you ever wonder why the, the, uh, the, the commandment to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? Did you ever wonder why that was, felt like it was rescinded in the New Testament? Have you ever struggled with that? I did. I did for a long time. Then I thought I had it, and then I sort of had it, but I didn't have it. And God has been showing me some wonderful, wonderful things about His Shabbat. It's, it is His Shabbat only that brings shalom. Not the Sabbaths that we come up with. Now, we've used it as, I mean, it's, we've, we've co-opted the term even to the point where if you take a period off and go do something else, what do we call that? A sabbatical, right? We take a sabbatical. Good thing to do. It can be restorative and constructive, but that's not what the Scripture's talking about. That's not the spirit of Shabbat. And when I'm having trouble reconciling Old Covenant and New Covenant, there's one book in the New Testament that is my go-to. You know what that is? Which book in the New Testament do you think offers us a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews. It brings together the concepts of the Old Testament in such a way that we can understand it under the covenant of grace. <clears throat> Not that the Old Covenant wasn't full of grace, but the way it got interpreted, it got kind of far away from the whole concept. Well, I want to talk today about keeping God's Sabbath. But you know where I'm going to start? I'm going to start in the Psalms of Ascent. <laughs> I've been taken with the Psalms of Ascent for many years now. Uh, Johnny referred to a book that I had recommended to him a couple weeks ago, and he held up his copy. I'm going to hold up my copy. My copy is almost 40 years old. <clears throat> his is a couple of weeks old. It's still in print. It's a long obedience in the same direction, subtitled Discipleship in an Instant Society. Now, imagine that title was in the 1980s <clears throat> or 70s even, I think, maybe when he wrote it, written by the very famous guy who just passed away, 
the author of the Message Bible, Gene Peterson. This was possibly the roots of his work on the message. And he goes through the Songs of Ascent and unfolds the truth hidden therein and not so hidden therein in fresh ways that even now when I go back and read this book, I just go, wow, wow. So I like recommending good books, and this is one that uh, I can wholeheartedly recommend, still in print, still available on Amazon, costs more now than when I bought it. <clears throat> in the Songs of Ascent, there is one preserved for us as Psalm 131. Would you turn to that? Psalm 131. I'm going to be reading from the old new international version, <clears throat> not the new new international version. I don't usually recommend against a, a version, but don't bother with the new version of the international version. Psalm 131, a song of ascents written by David. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. One of the shortest of the ascent songs. And I think it was Spurgeon who said that it's one of the quickest to read and one of the longest to learn. I am not so worried. I, I, <clears throat> I have had two or three people who I respect as brothers, as senior brothers in the Lord recently. In fact, I heard one of them right here last week in which a man of God who has probably forgotten more about Scripture than many of us will ever know said, I don't have any idea what I'm doing. Did you catch that when Jack Taylor said that? Uh, Bill Buckley posted that recently. I have no idea what I'm doing. And people who will sit in a Bible study with me, usually younger people, get kind of frustrated when they want to say, okay, Tim, tell us what this means. What's the answer? And I go, I don't know. I really don't. I have an idea or two. I have some understanding, and I'm glad to share it. But I never want my conclusions to be your conclusions. You see, the Word of God has its own power. And it does not, does not rely on spiritual maturity, academia, scientific research. It doesn't rely on any of those things that we want to dig into to come to the understanding because the Word of God is living and active. A lot of academicians approach the Word of God like an autopsy. It's like, what happened? We'll find out what happened. We're going to go here and see what happened. That's not, that's not the intent of Scripture. It's what's happening. What's unfolding? What's going on? Because one day, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Think of the import of that sentence. Yeah. 
That is incredible. The word of the Lord all through the Old Testament. In Hebrew, it's, it's the, the davar of God. Or dibre, if you want to use the construct form that makes it proper in the grammar. But it's, that's the word in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord. And you know what it usually is, it usually or often comes when it talks about the word of the Lord coming? It says, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Ezekiel. The word of the Lord. That's the same word. And, and you know what? When they translate the Old Testament into Greek, they use the word logos there. The logos of God came to. The logos of God came to. And then finally, John comes on the scene at the end of the first century, and he pens these words, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Earth-shattering. No, earth-healing. Shaking the universe to its foundation. And he came and he dwelled among us for a little while. I mean, if, if life of 70 years or so is, is a puff of smoke, Jesus on the earth was half of that. A blink, a second, a moment in history that changed everything. And on the day of Pentecost, the Word of the Lord went from dwelling among us in the bodily form of Jesus. <laughs> to living in you and me. When the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, then the sun turned dark and the moon turned to blood, billows of smoke, the dead were raised. You read that from the prophet Joel and you go, I'm not sure I see any of that happening in Acts. That's because you're looking on the wrong plane. You've got to see things from above. You've got to see things from God's point of view. You've got to be lifted up out of this mundane day-to-day -day existence that is so short and so brief that will, will hardly be a memory in the history of the universe. And see that which is eternal. Let me see things from your point of view. That stuff's too wonderful for me. <clears throat> I like to think about it. I like to let my mind float around and let the Holy Spirit open some things up to me. But when it comes right down to it, these are my impressions and my understanding. I think... As Paul would say, I think I too have the Holy Spirit, but, but it's so far beyond that. It's the God that Paul says, he, you know, to him who is able to do more than you ask or even imagine. Anybody that knows me knows I got a pretty big imagination. And it's not a thimble full of what God can do. Now, I'm not worried so much about that. <clears throat> and the psalmist says, uh, those, those things are too, those things are beyond me. So I, I'm going to quiet my soul. Quiet, quiet my soul. 
that, that's got to be one of the hardest things that humans have to do. Maybe you've never lay awake at night worrying about something, thinking about something, excited about something, planning something, dealing with something. And you try to quiet your soul. <clears throat> or you have, you have something that you're worried about. Maybe you're, I'm not one to lay awake at night. That's just, that's just me. And, and <clears throat> just because I'm such a dedicated sleeper, I think. But I've, I have my moments of worry, of, of fruitless churning of the soul inside of me. And quieting my soul. Oh, my goodness. So hard. So, so hard. But the psalmist wrote, I quiet my soul like a weaned child leaning into his mom. This is a great text for Mother's Day. We're so focused on the fatherhood of God, we miss his motherliness too. God's the mother in this one. Think about that. I could go all politically correct for 20 minutes if you wanted me to. But I won't. I don't think you want me to, and I sure don't want to. But we didn't get the image of God until he created man and woman. Right? He says he created him in his image, male and female. We get the whole picture of God when we have male and female. It's not one or the other. So, quiet my soul. The picture I get is, is the toddler. Have you ever tried to hold a toddler on your lap that doesn't want to be held? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, right. It's, it, it's, it's a struggle, to say the least. It's, a, it's an outright fight. Because if a child doesn't want to be held, try to calm down a child who's nearly hysterical over a broken toy or a lost privilege or just something that's just not right with the universe. Just try to quiet them down. You squeeze them and you hold them and they're kicking you and they're scratching and they're plucking your eyeballs from your very face. Well, maybe not, but it feels like it. And it's like, why don't you understand? I'm loving you here. I'm loving you. If you don't stop squirming, I'm going to smack you with some love. You got to take my love. Give me that. And it ain't going to happen until the child finally goes. <laughs> and leans in. And remembers. Remembers where the love is. Remembers where the protection is. Remembers where the provision is. Remembers what it means to be on mom's lap. Notice that he doesn't refer to himself as, as a nursing child. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, I'm like, I'm like a child at the mother's breast. I'm like a weaned child. A nursing child really doesn't have too much choice in the matter. 
I mean, they can be fussy, and we all have been around it. We've seen sometimes the wrestling that goes on just trying to feed an infant. But, but a wean child is, is, is one who, who's, who's stretched those apron strings a little bit, who can get out and run around and play and do some things independent of mom. It's a, and, and there's much more a sense of, of, of coming to mom and, and leaning in and resting for soul. It's my soul. My soul is quieted like a weaned child with its mother. Now, that's the picture. We know about the Ten Commandments, and we know, we know that, that God told Israel through Moses, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you will labor. And he, and he refers to his own creativity. It took him six days to speak into existence. He took six days. It didn't take him six days. He took six days. If God wanted to do it in a millisecond, he could have just done it that way. But he, he spoke each phase of creation into existence. And he brought it into completion with man and woman being sort of the pinnacle. And he says, mm, this is very good. I'm done. It's finished. I don't need to create tomorrow because I'm done creating today. And that is the model for the Sabbath that God gave. Create, 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 create. It's done. Boom. <sighs> Jesus reminded us that that doesn't mean that God quit doing stuff. He said in, in the Gospels, he said, he says, the Father and I are at it every day, all the time. We're still at it, but we're not creating the world anymore. That was done. He says, it's done. It's finished. We got a world. Let's go from here. Now, In Deuteronomy, when he, in the second giving of the law, he makes reference to the Sabbath in honor of the Exodus. And he talks about the rest that was for the people of Israel as they came out of slavery to go to the promised land. So there are two models in the Old Testament for Sabbath. One is the completion and one is the rest from slavery. Ah, ah, I can see little light bulbs coming on. Yeah. So when we get to Hebrews, and the Hebrew writer writes these words in Hebrews 3 and 4. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know where to start. It's also good. Um... I'm going to go clear back to 3.12. Get comfy. We're going to go quite a few verses. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. Is it still today? Okay. 
as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said today, has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were those who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert, and to whom God did swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobey? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed entered that rest just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time ago he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. You see, <clears throat> the Old Testament foreshadows paints a picture, typifies the truth of God and His dealings with man right on into the new covenant. We, we understand the absurdity of the people of Israel saying, Moses, you brought us out here to die, didn't you? We were better off in slavery, making bricks without straw, Sacrificing our boys to the sword of Pharaoh, being beaten in the sun, and driven to the extremes of human suffering was better than being dragged out here to die in the desert. Excuse me? The absurdity of wanting to go back to slavery... And, and we could be very critical, and yet all we have to do is look inside of us and see how we keep going back to the same old patterns and sins and unhealthy thinking and horrible relationships and neglect and laziness and all of the things that make us crazy because of the battle that rages inside of us. Well, we're just like them. 
I don't know about this faith business. I kind of remember some good stuff back there in the world. Some fun stuff. Some interesting, pretty stuff. Some valuable stuff. I remember some things. It was pretty good. And it sure felt better than what I'm going through right now. I think I'll go back. And we think the Israelites are stupid. That's the kind of rebellion that closes the door to God's rest. Don't you see? And, and it's not because God's going to get real mad and slam the door himself. It's because we turn back. I could walk all the way over to that door and stop short of it and decide not to go through it. I come back over here, we'll say the building is burning, and then blame somebody else because I didn't go through the door because there was something more interesting here. So it was cold outside and the fire inside was warmer. I don't know, something stupid like that. Because the enemy blinds us to the real values. It's all, it's all shadows and fear. It's all lies and illusion. None of that stuff. He gives maybe a little bit of truth. He said, mm, that felt good, didn't it? Yeah, that felt good. It's going to kill you. That's eh, not going to kill you. You've got to die of something. Ah, whatever. It's worth it. We, we, we are so, yeah. Because he just, he just, he does this little thing here. And all the while he's over here with a knife, sticking it in. It's distraction. Zing you when you're not looking. He says something pretty, and then he whispers a lie when you're not And we go, I think I'll just stay here. I'm just going to wander the wilderness. They brought him right up to the brink, didn't he? How long would it take to cross the, the, the peninsula there? To walk, even a couple million people, to walk them from Egypt to the, to the, to the Negev, to the southern part? A couple of months. We don't know how long it was, but it wasn't very long when they got to the, when they got to the border. And they sent spies in, and they brought back a report. We all sang the song, right? Ten were bad, and two were good. Ten of the spies said, there's big guys in there, and they make us look like grasshoppers. And I'm scared. And two of them, we, sh we know their names, right? Who said, who said, let's go? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. Guess who out of the millions of adults got to go in finally? Joshua and Caleb. They said, yeah, let's go, let's go. We got this because we stand with the Lord our God. If we look like grasshoppers to them, what do they look like to him? Uh, uh, 
brought us out here to die. They've been saying that since the shoreline of the Red Sea. At Meribah, we're going to say we're going to die of thirst. Ah. Smack the rock. Water flows. But, but he's angry. He called it Meribah. You know what Meribah means? It means, it means disobedience. They were disobedient. That's what he's referring to. These references to the Old Testament about hardened hearts and all that business, that's from Psalm 95, which, re, which takes us back to, to um, Deuteronomy and Exodus where the story is told of them hollering about being thirsty and not believing that God would provide. They were bound and determined not to rest. Like the child squirming on the mama's lap. Like the kid saying, I can do it myself, when he certainly cannot. And so he says, I just, I've been, eh, where do I want to go next? I don't know what I'm doing. I really don't. I know, but I know who does. <laughs> They, they did not enter in because they did not believe. It was a lack of faith. And, and in the Hebrews, he makes that clear. It was their unbelief, but he goes on then in verse 11 because of their disobedience. There's two words used there. One means to have faith, and the other means to disobey. And you know what? Almost synonym. We know. We forget, but we know that faith is not faith just when we acknowledge facts. That's not faith. If I said to you, 50 years ago I learned how to fly an airplane, got a license, You believe that? Yeah, I believe that. Um, and I could go out, get an airplane, fly all over the country safely, land a plane, get out, everything's intact. You believe that? Yeah, I believe that. And then I say, come on with me. You go, well, wait a minute. You see the difference between acknowledging facts and putting your faith in something? night and day. How did James say it in the, in the epistle of James? Faith without deeds is dead. It's not faith. Because who, you say there's one God, who else says that? The demons. The demons acknowledge that there is one God. Anybody here met any saved demons? Apparently, that's not faith, because if we're saved through faith, so it's not about acknowledging. It's about betting everything on it. 
You know, there's a... I'll come back to that. I hope I can. hope I remember. It's not quite in the right spot. So, I'm going to come up with some application to all of this. <clears throat> you may have figured out that I have not rescinded all of Paul's teachings about not one day is above another day, that we don't have the special moons and festivals and Sabbaths anymore. He says that clearly. And that's the basis on which people kind of went, eh, you know, got... 90% of the Ten Commandments, that's not bad. Except for the fact that Jesus said that not one stroke of the pen, not a dot, not a little seraph, will disappear from the law until heaven and earth disappear. The law is eternal. <clears throat> now, the ceremonial stuff, that's, that's not what he's talking about, but the law. You don't get much closer to the core than the Ten Commandments. How do we keep the Sabbath? Well, we used to have blue laws in a lot of communities about the Sabbath. First of all, Sabbath is related to the word seven. It was the seventh day and is the seventh day of the week. And somehow we transmorgified that into Sundays because that's when the church gathers to worship. So this was the Sabbath. You'll see that in a lot of particularly older writings. That Sunday is the Sabbath. Uh-uh. It's not. That was an invention somewhere along the line. And, and it's like most things from the Old Testament law coming into the New Testament, we've got to go and see things from above. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You have been taught... Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, what did he say? Don't lust. Do not look at a woman for the purpose of lusting. Okay? That's a very deliberate sentence. That's, how, that's what he said. You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say, don't hate your brother. Don't, don't. Don't reduce him to meaninglessness. He says, if you call your brother Rakha, you're in danger of hell. Rakha, what does that mean? It means useless, vain, empty person. That's the very word that comes to mind when I'm driving in traffic in the morning. And I repent every day. <laughs> You're a waste of space. Why are you taking up my oxygen? I can be very creative. I try to control myself and not use language that's unacceptable for Christians in our culture. So I have to be more creative. I once had a manager in, uh, in Charleston. I, I said something. I remember what I said. I'm not going to bother you with that. She was, she was from England, and she turned to me and she says, Tim, you have the most genteel way of swearing I have ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I guess I kind of was swearing, wasn't I? <clears throat> well, anyway, he says, if you regard people as worthless or you hate them, you might as well kill them. He's not saying we might as well kill them, but in the, in the eyes of God, you've broken, you've crossed the line there. 
in the heart, you've crossed the line. Lust crosses the line. And on and on and on the list goes. Jesus was saying, look, if you're only going to try to manage your behavior on the outside, it's going to do you no good. You'll be just like the Pharisees whom he called whitewashed tombs. All shiny, pretty on the outside, but inside is rotting flesh and bones. So the Sabbath comes along. He's not talking about legalistically making sure you're in church or not patronizing those businesses that refuse to close on Sunday. We want, we want, it, we wanted everybody, we wanted everybody to observe the Sabbath except the emergency room. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, that see, that's that's where legalism. This never makes sense. It's dumb. It's in here. So Sabbath. Okay, so how do we have the Sabbath of the heart? How do we? Well, for a long time, I, I really thought that it had a whole bunch to do, and it stood against the, the raw ambition of my generation particularly. You know, the baby boomers are, will probably live in infamy as the most ambitious bunch of workaholics that was ever produced in Western culture. And I think it applies. God wants us to pause stewardship issue of, of this that we're borrowing for a while. <clears throat> but it goes deeper, I've learned. Far deeper. The Shabbat, the rest the stopping to strive, the climbing up on Mama God's lap and leaning in. I remember, I remember how my mom felt, how she smelled, what it felt like when she put her arm around me. I remember. That never leaves you, not even in my age. And, and, and God wants that for us with Him. He says, I've made the world. You seek me in the kingdom, and all the stuff is there for you, all that you need. And He's always been saying that. He said that in the garden. You can have anything you want except that. Ooh, let's go check that out. But the reason they went to check that out is because the enemy's whispering in his ear saying, God don't like you. He don't trust you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want your eyes to be open. He doesn't, he does, that's not going to hurt you, and he doesn't want you to have it because it's probably the best tree in the whole garden. And by the way, where's all this other fruit coming from? Maybe you better just start taking care of yourself. Because you sure can't trust God. It's his theme song. He's singing it to you right now. He's singing it to you when you have a moral decision to make. You don't want to miss that. He's having, when you're deciding what to do with your time. 
when you're deciding what to pursue as your life goals and your career goals and your dreams and your aspirations that turn into, into ambitions that, that become the, the center of our, of our work ethic. Ambition is always good in our culture. Really, it is. Within certain restraints, but not too many. As long as you're not doing something clearly damaging to, to people around you, then, then the more ambition, the better you are in our culture. That's not scriptural. Is, why do you think we're hunter-gatherers? More, 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 more. I need more. I don't care how much you make, you want more. I have made very, very little. I went to college without a scholarship, without parents to pay for it. I've been poor. I didn't know I was poor. I looked back and I went, whew, I was poor. In fact, it was a number of years when I was in, in uh, preaching ministry when I discovered that I was living below the poverty line. So, huh, I didn't know that. And I've been quite well off. Not rich by most standards, certainly not by the standards of the people I hang around. I've worked for men who, who gross, the highest one I ever worked with, grossed 700 and some thousand dollars a year before taxes. If I asked him to define what was enough, do you know what it was? A little bit more. A little bit more. I regularly have worked with people who make a million dollars every two years. They make a million dollars every two years. Can you wrap your head around that? And do you know what they complain about the most? Don't have enough. And, and I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about people who, who profess faith in Christ. It is the, it is the, the strength of this world, the, the, the shadows of the enemy, the appetites of the flesh gone awry. And it is so strong, it is so powerful, that it will sneak up on you and grab you little nibble at a time. When I made $15,000 a year, I thought, man, if I could make $18,000 a year, I have it made. And when I made $20,000 a year, you know, the whole thing. And I'll bet you've done it too. I recently had, I recently had that moment of revelation when um, there was a point this year when I opened up my app and I looked at my bank account and I went, ooh, that's not very much. I went, ooh, I got I to be careful now for a couple of weeks till they pay me again. <laughs> you see, and, and God tapped me on the shoulder <laughs> That's how he taps me on the shoulder. <clears throat> he said, what would you have thought if you opened your app two years ago and saw that number? And I confessed. I'd have thought payday was yesterday. <laughs> you see? Ah! And that brings us to the great paradox in Hebrews, we read right through it. I don't know if you caught it. Down here in Hebrews 4, 
verse 11, he said, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. You see the paradox? Work hard, be diligent. Come on, put out the effort to enter the rest. Rest speaks of the shalom, the Shabbat shalom. That's, 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 what does it mean to rest? Well, shalom means wholeness. That's the, that's the, the core of the Old Testament word for peace is wholeness. It could be everything you need. It could be everything that you're to be. It can be everything of righteousness. It can be everything, everything, everything. It's wholeness. There's no holes. There's no, there's no breaks. That's shalom. We think about it as the opposite of conflict, and, but, but that's, not, that's not what the word means. <clears throat> Satisfaction. It's satisfied. Completion. How about this one? Grace. If God requires a full cup, it matters not whether I can bring one with a few drops or this much close to the brim, I still need His grace to bring it to full. And He does. How about destination? It was for the Israelites, for sure. Their destination was across the Jordan. It was our destiny. I hear that a lot. Uh, we, we, pick up, we pick up words and use them in church, and, and, and I start wondering sometimes where those terms came from. I hear people talk about destiny a lot, and prophetic people like to talk about they're going to pronounce God's destiny over you. And if I'm a young person... I'm going, yeah, tell me some of this destiny. I don't have a clue where I'm going after I graduate. Give me some destiny. I got it, if you want to know. On good authority, your destiny is Him. And it isn't here. No matter if you live 100 years, your destiny is home. Now, there's some interesting twists and turns and pathways, but your destiny is home. Anything less than that is a way station. You could have the most successful ministry, the most successful career, the most successful song, the most successful book. You can have the most successful bit of notoriety and be known throughout Starkville. Because that's really, you could be known worldwide, and that's just about the same thing in the reality of God. I'm going to be world famous. What, that little blue marble on the edge of the Milky Way galaxy? <laughs> well, well, everybody on it knows who I am. <laughs> we, we get satisfied with the stupidest little things. We chase baubles. We, 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 we go for pop beads when God's saying, I got diamonds here. Just because we're in this flesh, destiny's in. Grace. 
Peace comes from surrender. Work hard to surrender. What? Well, you have to work hard to surrender because you've got to get that calm down business. You've got to stop that activity. You've got to rein in the appetites. You've got to rein in and you've got to ignore the lies of the enemy and bring yourself back to the truth that God is. He was, He is, He is to come. He has always provided everything you need. And your problem is you keep redefining everything you need. The child at its, at its mother's breast only needs mom. And the toddler only needs mom because you stick with mom, you're going to have everything you need. Oh, hey, that's how it works. You stick with God, you're going to have everything you need. If you don't have it, you don't need it. That's quoting my daughter. And she says, if you don't have it yet, you don't need it yet. <laughs> the earth moved <clears throat> with the truth, the weight of the truth, set off the car alarm. Wouldn't that be the day? I'm waiting for this room to move. So we've got to stop struggling, stop resisting, stop forcing. You see, the flesh is so stinking powerful, we, we even bring it into the church and baptize it. We want to do good things. We want to serve God. Anybody here want to serve God? Sure, we want to serve God. <clears throat> There's not a whole lot in the Bible about serving God, by the way. Most of the time, the word that gets translated serve God is also the word that means worship. Ooh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Man, that's hard. <laughs> okay, so I got some ADHD too. This takes faith. Faith is an effort. It is something that you have to do. And it's something that has to be fed and watered and cultivated and weeded. And you, you can't just sort of sit around and hope faith will fall out of the sky on you. Where do you get faith? What does the Word say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, we'll take that in consideration. I puzzled over the, this last paragraph, and how in the world, why did the Hebrew writer go here after all of this talk about entering the rest? He goes into verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts, attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. It is the truth of God, and the truth of God firmly rooted in you that will produce the faith, that will give you the stick to itiveness. And how much do you need to stick to it? Mustard seed. You just need enough to get through today. Tomorrow it's going to happen. You know? How many of us have gone on a diet 
we're going to do this diet for six months. How long does that last? You got to take it a little bit at a time. You can't control next month. You can't control next week. You can't control tomorrow. Shoot, I wake up in the morning. If I get all the way through three meals behaving myself, I've done pretty good. Or your exercise program. Or there's all sorts of, of applications like that. But we, we miss the fact that, that Scripture doesn't really treat repentance as a one-time event. Faith, not a one-time event. Believing in your heart, confessing with your mouth, not a one-time event. We live a life of faith. We live a life of repentance. Shoot, I repent so many times during the day, I'm dizzy by midday from turning in direction. It's not really that bad, but you know what I'm saying. And confession, a life of confession. These things that we tried to turn into steps of salvation aren't steps. It's the new life. And it all happens when we rest in Him, on the foundation of His Word. So if you're having trouble with your faith, I suggest you spend more time with the Bible. What, a, what, what an idea. I can't hear God's voice. Well, maybe you need to look at what He said so you'll recognize what He's saying. I remember the first time I heard recording of C.S. Lewis from his old radio program on which the book Mere Christianity is based. Well, not based. Those are the scripts from his radio show. There's only two or three that still exist. And I heard it, and I was so disappointed. He had a terrible voice for radio. It sounded awful. I thought C.S. Lewis should be more like, you know, this is the way you speak if you write about Narnia. <laughs> uh-uh, it was more like this. You know, with a, talked funny, too. He's from England. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but now, now, when I, now when I read his stuff, I can kind of hear that voice. And, and, and people... Wonder, you know, is God speaking to me? Is He speaking to me? Is that His voice? Wouldn't it be nice if we had a recording of His voice so we would recognize it when and when He speaks? We do. We have, we have hundreds of pages of His voice. And if you get to know this, when the thought comes to you, you'll know whether it's from Him or not. If this is in you. So he comes, back to, he comes back to the Word of God when he's, when he's helping people find this rest. <clears throat> you know, the uh, last thing I want to leave with you, I, I really actually, this is all in process, so... You're kind of stepping your toe in a river that's going by this morning. That's, that's what this is all about. <clears throat> but you know the word cornerstone in, in Scripture? When we talk about the cornerstone, what are we going to be talking about? Christ Jesus. Yes. Yeah. He's the cornerstone. And you know how cornerstones work? They were 
strictly engineered to be perfectly level, perfectly plumb. Why? The whole house depended on it. Why? Because that was the standard by which the rest of the foundation stones were measured. And then every stone that was built upon it, if it was a little bit askew, well, come to my house. I'll show you what askew is all about because I got clay going <laughs> under my house. Well, it's interesting that that word cornerstone can also be translated capstone or keystone. Do you know what that is? You know what a keystone is? When, when the Romans came up with the idea of the arch, with those kind of, without a point, the, the sort of pie-shaped stones that went up here and made an arch, that, that, that uh, last one that went in, it's called the keystone. It had to be precise. Do you know how much mortar they put in those arches? Zero. It was all gravity. And they built the aqueduct bridges. We still use the same concept in some bridge building today of an arch. And, and, and we got engineering people here who could explain exactly how that works. I don't understand it, but I do know this, that that perfect capstone shaped the arch and with it could hold up tons. There is a capstone revealed in Scripture who, like his father, one day looked at what he had done and he said, it is finished. What did he mean? He meant there was no work to do. There was nothing to earn. There was no place within you, no matter how satisfying it feels to do good. That's flesh. That's not spirit. There's nothing that you could do. But he did it all at the greatest price possible on the cross of Calvary. And his triumphant cry is, I'm done. It's done. We need nothing more. And you can rest on that. And you've entered grace. And you've entered the promised land. Yeah, we're, we're still trying to get some of those... Uh, Canaanites out of our promised land. But they're not out there. They're in here. But it's done. The battle's won. That was decisive. The war, the war is not quite over, but the victory is sure. <laughs> and it lasts forever. Rest in the perfect fit of you and God's grace of you and God's gifts, of you and God's love, even as it surrounds you right here in this room. That's the Sabbath. And to you, I say, Shabbat Shalom.